the History Channel original podcast. History This Week, November 7th, 1811. I'm Sally Helm. These prairies are no stranger to fire. Grasses and wildflowers flourish here, but in the summer months, they dry out quick. Lightning strikes cause fires that burn the plants and release nutrients. Over time, that's helped keep the soil rich in this region, near the spot where the Wabash and Tippecanoe rivers meet. Native American tribes in the area also sometimes burned the prairies to clear the land for hunting. Europeans found the rich soil good for growing crops. And those forces have helped lead us here, to a chilly night in a forested spot where a group of soldiers has lit a fire. A bonfire to dry their wet clothes and their boots. These men are led by the white governor of the Indiana Territory, William Henry Harrison. Harrison's been told to try and keep the peace. But he wants land, and he's come here to try and take it. Less than a mile away is a flourishing Native American settlement called Prophetstown. It's led by two brothers, Tecumseh, known for his skill as both a warrior and a diplomat, and Tenskwatwa, a religious leader whose teachings have brought Native people from far and wide to this spot by the Wabash River. When Harrison arrived yesterday, unexpectedly, Tecumseh wasn't in Prophetstown, but some of its Native American leaders rode out to meet the white governor. They all agreed to a council to be held the following morning to try and avoid bloodshed. So at this moment, in the middle of the night, on this spot of prairie by the banks of the Wabash River, all is briefly calm. But by the time dawn breaks, these two sides will be in a battle it ends with one of their settlements burned to the ground. Today, the Battle of Tippecanoe. How did a future president exploit this conflict to catapult himself all the way to the White House? And how did Prophetstown become the most powerful alliance of Native American military, spiritual, and social forces to ever take on the U.S. government. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Twenty years before the Battle of Tippecanoe, the American colonists have won the revolution, which means they're now in control of the eastern seaboard of the land we call the United States. But their adversary in that war, Great Britain, is still lurking nearby. The British rule key parts of the land that now makes up Canada to the north, 
And out west, the Spanish control a vast empire stretching from what is now California to the bottom of South America. And all the while, living all across these lands are indigenous people. People whose fathers and whose fathers' fathers were born and raised here. If we was to try to put a pin on the map of where the core Shawnee homelands are, it would be that Ohio River Valley. This is Chief Ben Barnes, the current elected leader of the Shawnee people. I've been chief of the Shawnee for exactly one global pandemic. (laughs) Chief Barnes told us, up until the 1800s, the Shawnee people were spread out over land that now makes up over two dozen states. But the core of the community was in what we call the Midwest. After the Revolutionary War, Americans see that as their new frontier. And they begin to push west, bearing down on those who already live in these lands. So this would have been time of a lot of warfare. By the 1790s, there's a powerful group of indigenous warriors fighting to protect their lands. They're allied with the British to the north. The United States is their common enemy. The Shawnee Chief Blue Jacket and Miami Chief Little Turtle form an intertribal alliance to push back against American encroachment. White Americans call it the Northwestern Confederacy. Though, again, they're located in what we call the Midwest. And in 1791... This confederacy launched a sophisticated encirclement maneuver around the United States Continental Army. And they truly decimated that army. In just one battle, some estimates say that half the entire army of the newly formed United States is killed or wounded. This is remembered as St. Clair's defeat after the U.S. Army officer who led it and lost. The news returns to the eastern seaboard, and the young country is shaken. The newspapers were clutching at their pearls and wondering, what's next? Are they going to push us into the ocean? This is the world in which two Shawnee brothers are growing up. A world marked by violence and displacement, yes, but also suffused with a sense of indigenous resistance, intertribal alliances, power. The brothers' names are Tecumseh and Tenskwatua. Tecumseh was a very private man. He was an outstanding hunter. He liked to be by himself, to hunt alone by himself when he could. That's Peter Cousins, a historian and author of a book about the brothers. But at the same time, he was charismatic. He was a, a natural leader of men. He had been since he was a boy. His early years are full of violence. His family is repeatedly forced to move. His father, a war chief, is killed in battle with the Americans when Tecumseh is still a child. And when Tenskwatawa is still in his mother's womb. Tenskwatawa, or Tenskwatawa, is Tecumseh's younger brother. The two spend their formative years in what was then known as the Northwest Territory. And in 1794, just a few years after St. Clair's defeat, Tecumseh puts his skills as a warrior to use against U.S. Army troops sent to Ohio. The troops are there to seize as much of Ohio as possible, break up the Pan-Indian alliance that then existed so that better part of Ohio and Kentucky would be safe for American settlement and secured from Indian threats, so to speak. One of the young American officers sent to this region is William Henry Harrison. He'd once dreamed of becoming a doctor, but they just weren't the funds for it in the family. And so 
he decided to seek his fortune on the frontier as a young army officer. Harrison's family had been wealthy. He's the son of a Virginia planter who'd lost his fortune during the Revolution when his plantation burned to the ground at the hands of the British. So Harrison comes west under a cloud of grievances. In his early 20s, he was already virulently anti-British. And she always saw the, the Indians as British lackeys. He could never separate legitimate grievances that the Indians had about loss of land, about white encroachment on Indian lands. He could never separate that from the British. That's what brings Harrison to Ohio in 1794, to what will become known as the Battle of Fallen Timbers, fighting against the indigenous Northwestern Confederacy and their longtime British allies. It's the first time that Harrison and Tecumseh will meet. The encounter will set the tone for a lifetime of conflict. Tecumseh is leading a contingent of Shawnee warriors on the front lines. He's one of the first to fire his musket as the U.S. Army approaches. The Native American warriors are on foot, fighting in the thick woods against soldiers on horseback, including Harrison. And it doesn't go well for the Northwestern Confederacy. They're outnumbered more than three to one. Tecumseh tries to hold his own on the battlefield, but many other Shawnee warriors are scattering. He tried to rally a couple of other groups of Indians to continue fighting, but was unsuccessful and eventually joined the Indian retreat from the battlefield. They head for the safety of a nearby British fort, only to find they can't get in. The British closed the gates of the fort to the Indians because they did not want to provoke a fight with the Americans. Wow, so they kind of betrayed their allies. Yeah, literally locked the gates of Fort Miami against the Indians. Tecumseh and his remaining warriors end up escaping. In the wake of this loss in battle and this betrayal by the British, the Northwestern Confederacy falls apart. 99 tribal leaders are forced to sign an expansive treaty, the Treaty of Greenville. It gives up a good chunk of their Ohio land to the Americans and lets the U.S. government build trading posts on the lands the tribes do maintain, In exchange, the Native Americans get some money. Not that that's much consolation. This is a devastating loss. The treaty will alter the way of life they'd known for generations. Because without enough land for hunting, many are pushed into farming. Did you imagine the frustration? Chief Ben Barnes. And I cannot imagine Tecumseh not conferring with his brother, saying in the forefront of their conversations, is how do we protect a way of life that's under threat? Tecumseh decides the best way to do that is to step away from the community where he's grown up and form his own community, away from the grasp of these white American settlers. So he refuses to sign the Treaty of Greenville. He rallies a group of other disillusioned young men, including his brother, Tenskwatawa. It's about a tenth of the Shawnee community, and together they retreat to the woods. Peter Cousins told us they build their own village in a place called Deer Creek. It would have been, you know, pretty bucolic setting. A clear stream running by the village, a mix of traditional wigwams, which were semicircular shaped earthen structures, and log cabins, lots of forest, tall prairie grass, and cultivated fields. Meanwhile, a hundred miles to the east, 
in the Shawnee community the brothers had left behind, things are changing quick. White Americans are steadily implementing those assimilationist policies after the Treaty of Greenville. Men were beginning to assume a role in agriculture. They were beginning to use American farm implements, wearing clothing very similar to Americans on the frontier, using American implements to cook for housework. All this change is carefully calculated, in part by William Henry Harrison. He'd become governor of what was then called the Indiana Territory. All of Indiana, Wisconsin, better part of Illinois. Harrison is getting his orders from the very top, from President Thomas Jefferson himself. Thomas Jefferson, as president, he has his vision of an empire of liberty, as he called it. And he believed the only way that the American democracy could thrive is if the United States was able to gain control from the Indians of the entirety of the Midwest and also of the American South. Jefferson writes Harrison a confidential letter. He says, I have a plan. He wanted to try to gain as much Indian land as they could by treaty without provoking war. To do that, Jefferson plans to make the tribes dependent on American trade and then drive them into debt. He writes, we shall push our trading houses and be glad to see the good and influential individuals among them run in debt. When these debts get beyond what the individuals can pay, they become willing to lop them off by a cession of lands. In other words, the United States will use the debt as leverage against the Native Americans. And at the same time, gently coerce them into becoming small farmers, give up the hunt, so they would need less land. Jefferson writes, when they withdraw themselves to the culture of a small piece of land, they will perceive how useless to them are their extensive forests and be willing to pair them off from time to time. And gradually pry away as much land as he could. Wow, so he's, it's a, he's sort of laying out a whole almost, I don't know, tricky strategy. It was a strategy of peaceable conquest. Meanwhile, Tecumseh and his Deer Creek village are essentially living off the grid not antagonizing white American settlers, just keeping their distance. The winter of 1804 hits the village hard. There's a flu epidemic, and many fall ill. And this is when Tecumseh's younger brother, Tenskwatua, becomes a key part of our story. Because he has a religious awakening. Tenskwatua is a tricky character to understand. Many people will go on to write about him, but the details of his early life and personality are fuzzy at best. To be honest with you, I, I don't think that we can say for certain what he was like. Professor Stephen Warren wrote a book, The Shawnees and Their Neighbors. He said, you can't take the sources we have at face value. At the time of Tenskwatawa's life, a minority of Americans were literate. And those who were literate tended to be proponents of removal. People like William Henry Harrison, U.S. Army officers, government officials, missionaries sent to convert indigenous tribes. When we say that, you know, this is a one-sided story, it, it literally is because it's very difficult to find sources from Native people themselves. Warren told us the sources we have about Tenskwatawa largely paint him in comparison to his brother Tecumseh, 
and they frame his early years as a pretty much total failure. The majoritarian view is that he was a failed hunter and alcoholic, an abuser and a philanderer, and reached kind of the, the depths of his own depravity and had a conversion experience. But this arc of his life and career is shaped by the desire uh, for Indian removal. It lines up with stereotypes that people later use to justify that removal. Warren and some other scholars doubt this negative portrait of Tenskwatawa. Warren says, what is known for sure is that around this time, Tenskwatawa has a series of spiritual awakenings that change his life. He conceives a new vision for his people. In 1805, he launches a movement that rejects American influence and turns back to the traditional ways of Shawnee life. Here's Shawnee chief Ben Barnes. He was asking people to return to their traditional religions, that the ideas and things that had came over from Europe to this country were foreign and anathema to traditional communities, and the adoption of some of those customs were destroying the fabric that made up traditional communities, that the things that they had been given had been good enough for them for thousands of years. And by returning to those things, they would find strength. Tenskwatawa founds a new community in Greenville and asks people to join him. They'll live communally on the land, hunt only with bows and arrows. He's telling indigenous people to kill their hogs. Hogs are not part of our traditional food system. That hogs are destroying the landscape. Get rid of the alcohol, stop doing this, and, you know, return to your traditional ways. Tenskwatawa says, just hunt as much game as you need to survive. No point killing extra to trade. In other words, he's promoting self-reliance which is a good way to resist the snares of Jefferson's plan for peaceable conquest through debt. He was urging his peoples to not be so reliant upon uh, flaky and unreliable European allies. And does that message resonate with other Shawnee people? I think it resonates with a lot of indigenous peoples and tribes start arriving from all over Eastern United States and Canada that wanted to be a part of this return to the ways of their grandparents. It recalls the days of St. Clair's defeat, when a group of tribes came together to make common cause. Though, Chief Byrne says, it wasn't like all the distinctions melted away. They wouldn't have this idea of, oh, a pan-Indian revolution. You know, that wasn't the thinking. The thinking was, you know, we're going to come together and maintain these distinct identities. Can you give me a sense of, like, what would have been difficult or impressive about the fact that they were able to create this alliance? The one that surprises me the most is the distance. We all take it for granted that we can get across the United States, lick it and split. Can you imagine? How do you get from Alabama to Detroit in a time before rail, in a time before steamboat, time before airplane? And yet, here's this guy building up this giant alliance. White Americans nearby are taking notice. They start referring to Tenskwatawa as the prophet. They can see what a stir he's causing, all this movement and migration. In northern Michigan, one U.S. Army captain remarks, there appears to be an extensive movement among the savages of this quarter. Belts of wampum are rapidly circulating from one tribe to another. William Henry Harrison is watching all this unfold from his estate in the territorial capital. And he isn't too worried at first. It seems to him this is mostly a religious movement, and they're self-reliant, keeping themselves. 
Although, the community at Greenville is itself something of a provocation because it's on the American side of the line established by the Treaty of Greenville, the one that grabbed large swaths of Indian land and that Tecumseh refused to sign. In September of 1807, a group of U.S. Army officers goes there to poke around. They ask Tenskwatua, what are your intentions? Why'd you set up your village across treaty lines? Are you trying to pick a fight? And he reassures them, we're not looking for trouble. In fact, we'll move our settlement across the Wabash River, farther away from American settlements and on the other side of the treaty line. In the spring of 1808, they do just that. They call their new community Prophetstown. Are there ways that you would have felt in Prophetstown the influence of Tenskwatawa's teachings? Would those have somehow made the town feel different from other Shawnee communities that were not run by Tenskwatawa? I don't know if I would call it run by Tenskwatawa. Probably would be more like Burning Man. You have people speaking different languages. You got people just showing up, right? Staking out a space for themselves. There'd have been that quality to it. that would have been like, oh, this feels a little bit like a commune. Tecumseh has an important role in this community, too. He's still a diplomat, an alliance builder. He's helping to bring people to Prophetstown. Chief Barnes said that may actually be how he got his name. His name, Tecumseh? I almost think that's a title. Not, not his real given name by his parents, Tecumseh, the one who flies from this place to the next. So here's crossing these voids of geography, you know, jumping from one place to another. But it's not just him. It's the word of Tenskwatawa. The word of Tenskwatawa is also Trev. The religious movement is intimately tied up with the politics, the alliance building. Peter Cousins told us William Henry Harrison starts to realize that. He senses this growing emphasis on, you know, we're going to not just unite spiritually, but we're, you know, we're going to hold on to what lands we have. And you're not going to get any more land, uh, Governor Harrison, from us. No more divide and conquer. This is a problem for Harrison. He has his own ambitions, and he's worried the brothers might derail them. Harrison is still governor of the Indiana Territory, but that territory has been shrinking. Michigan and Illinois, which had been part of Indiana when Harrison first took over, have since broken off to become independent territories of their own. So being governor of the Indiana Territory doesn't mean all that it once did. Peter Cousins told us Harrison wants more. He has visions of being a state governor. And to be governor of a state, you've got to have more land and you've got to have more people. To turn Indiana into a full state of its own, he's going to need to step on the brothers' toes. But he starts by talking to other indigenous leaders. In 1809, just to test the waters, he negotiates what's called the Treaty of Fort Wayne with a number of malleable chiefs who he literally... Uh, lubricates for the proceedings with alcohol and bribes and gets them to sign away another large strip of, of land in Indiana that comes dangerously close to Prophetstown. Tecumseh hadn't been happy with the Treaty of Greenville in the first place. And with this new Treaty of Fort Wayne, Harrison is violating even that previous treaty, taking more land. This is after the brothers have already moved their community to the other side of the treaty line. He's kind of throwing down the gauntlet to Tenskwatawa and Tecumseh. The brothers now have a decision to make. Do we fight? Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In May of 1810, Tenskwatawa hosts a conference of several hundred Western Indians in Prophetstown to discuss the outrageous new treaty. And people like Harrison begin to realize, if the brothers can rally enough support among other indigenous tribes, they might really be able to take on the U.S. Army again and win. What was threatening, because they remember, this is where Sinclair's defeat's really important. Chief Ben Barnes. They don't want that to happen again. They don't want to see a pan-Indian alliance that's going to crush the Continental Army. So they're going to need to do something. Harrison, in fact, is freaking out. In June of 1810, he tells a group of territorial officials and prominent citizens that Tenskwatawa is plotting an attack on his estate. That attack never comes. Still, he sends an interpreter to Prophetstown to threaten the tribes. I know your warriors are brave. Ours are not less so, he says. Our blue coats are more numerous than you can count, and our hunting shirts are like the leaves of the forests or the grains of the sands on the Wabash. The brothers tell them Tecumseh will be going to William Henry Harrison's estate to hold an interview with the governor, face-to-face. It's a tense, 10-day-long meeting. There's one story about a meeting like this that Chief Barnes likes, whether it really happened or not. They're sitting on a bench, and Tecumseh keeps scooting closer and closer and closer along the bench until finally William uh, Henry Harrison has to get up from the bench or be driven off the bench by Tecumseh. And he makes a comment about that's what it feels like to be Shawnee, is that you keep scooting and scooting and scooting and scooting until we have no more space. I'm sure that's apocryphal, and it's probably not true, but I love that story. Harrison later tells a story about one moment where the hostility nearly bubbles over. Harrison is sitting on the front steps of his home, and Tecumseh is sitting on the ground in front of him with his delegation. Tecumseh is saying... You know that this Fort Wayne Treaty crosses a line. Look, we are not going to yield up another inch of Indian ground to you. Yeah, you've gone as far as you're going to go. Harrison says he won't return the land, and he defends the Americans' actions. Before his interpreter has the chance to translate... Tecumseh understands English. (laughs) I think unbeknownst to Harrison, perhaps, and he loses his temper, and he gets up and reaches for his hatchet... Harrison reaches for his saber, the militia draw their weapons, and it almost comes to blows. Everyone's on their feet, weapons drawn. But fortunately, cooler heads prevail, and that conference ends clearly on a sour note. I mean, Harris says, I'm not giving up that ground. 
you can't expect me to. It's up to the great father, the president. Tecumseh saying, well, if the great father will not do this, then to paraphrase Tecumseh, he can sit in Washington and drink his fine wine while you and I battle out here on the ground. Tecumseh leaves knowing that war is inevitable. He has to make sure he's ready to put up a fight. And by the following summer, he has a plan. First, he reestablishes the alliance with Great Britain, which is feuding with the U.S., mostly over territory and trade. Now, the British start supplying the Shawnee brothers with weapons. They want their indigenous allies armed in case the conflict with the U.S. comes to blows. Tecumseh makes a parallel calculation. If he combines these British weapons with a much larger allied indigenous force, that might be enough to keep the Americans at bay. So he decides it's time to make a big move. Take this alliance to the next level. So in the summer of 1811, Tecumseh decides that he needs to expand the alliance south of the Ohio River. That he needs to go and talk to the Choctaw, the Cherokee, the Creek, and the Chickasaw. These are tribes numbering like 20 to 25,000 each. And they hold the entire Deep South. Makes sense. Their support could tip the scales. But Tecumseh makes what I consider to be a huge strategic error. Inexplicably, he reveals his plans to his enemy. Tecumseh tells Harrison, I'm going to ride south of the Ohio River. I'm going to go among my Indian brethren in the Cherokee and Creek and Chickasaw, Choctaw country to make common cause to protect what we have. Harrison hears this and sees an opening. Harrison realizes that Tecumseh really is the military, political heart and soul of this alliance. So Harrison figures, okay, now is the time for me to strike. Tecumseh leaves Prophetstown for his big recruitment drive, and Harrison writes to Washington. Essentially cooks up a non-existent Indian threat, and he sells the War Department and the Madison administration on the need to preemptively attack Prophetstown. Harrison tells the Secretary of War, I'll try to preserve the peace. Then, with over a thousand men behind him, he marches toward Prophetstown. Suddenly, William Henry Harrison appears literally on the doorstep of Prophetstown. He catches Tenskwatawa and the other Indians completely unaware. Tenskwatawa sends out a courier, asks that, that the Americans stop where they are on the bank of a creek that, that empties into Tippecanoe. Because they're not supposed to be there. They're not supposed to be there. This is Indian land. Sources disagree on whether Tenskwatawa ordered his forces to attack. Before Tecumseh left town, he had asked his brother to keep things from coming to blows. But that's not what happens. Shooting breaks out, and a battle begins. At first, things are going well for Tenskwatawa's warriors. Harrison's men had established these big bonfires all around the periphery of their camp that literally blinded them to the Indians, but conversely silhouetted them to the Indians. Plus, it was raining cats and dogs, so the Indians were able to come up very close to the whites with a matter of a few yards, unseen by the soldiers. But things quickly begin to devolve. There's a group of warriors tasked with capturing Harrison himself, but they're thrown for a loop. Harrison got on a different horse than his own. They were supposed to be looking for a guy on a white horse. 
he got on a different horse, so they couldn't find him. Tenskwatawa's warriors are running out of ammunition. So they break off the fight. Harrison pursues, and the Indians abandon Prophetstown. Then Harrison and his forces burn Prophetstown to the ground. He goes home. He sends us, you know, this bombastic message. I have defeated the Shawnee Brothers Alliance. Aren't I great? You know, they, that, that alliance is broken for good. It's a great sell to the folks in Washington. But Cousin says, all this bragging turns out to be premature. The most important fallout is that more Indians rally to Tecumseh and Tengswatawa's cause. That within a few months... By the following spring, by the spring of 1812, they have more followers than they did before Harrison launched his attack. Because Harrison's attack convinced a lot of wavering Indians who were still well removed from the area of conflict, who were living in Wisconsin or in northern Illinois. Geez, the Americans were actually going to come on to Indian land and attack us on our own land. They attacked Tengspatalo on his own ground. And so it drew more adherence to their cause. And it strengthened it greatly. That summer, those squabbles between the British and the Americans break out into all-out war. The War of 1812. President James Madison justifies that war, in part, by pointing to the Shawnee brothers. As Tecumseh and Tengspatalo rebuilt their alliance, you know, there were these, these revenge raids that occurred, and the Madison administration used them as, as evidence that the British are, you know, are stirring up trouble and instigating Indians to violence. Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa and their alliance fight alongside the British in the War of 1812. At its apex, they have more than 6,000 warriors in battle people that flocked to the cause after Harrison's attack near the Tippecanoe River. Tecumseh, he's instrumental in helping the British capture Detroit from the Americans and capture the entire American army in the Midwest and hold Michigan for almost a year. For a time, it's looking like Tecumseh and the British may even be able to force the Americans out of part of Ohio. That might mean that the brothers could reclaim the Ohio River Valley as the homeland they've been dreaming of. But then things start to fall apart. The Americans, led by William Henry Harrison, force the fighting north to Ontario. And Tecumseh's alliance starts to crumble. Within a matter of weeks, he goes from 6,000 warriors to 600. Because war in Canada, that's not what's motivating the indigenous warriors. Remember, they're fighting with the British because they want British help in establishing and maintaining a homeland. And they had no desire to fight strictly for the British in Canada. Finally, in a fateful battle up in Ontario in October of 1813, Tecumseh is killed. Harrison would later write that he himself volunteered to examine the body to confirm his enemy's death. It's a tragic end to a defiant life. But Professor Stephen Warren believes it's really Tenskwatawa, the surviving brother, who suffers most, not Tecumseh. He had the good fortune of dying on the battlefield. That was not the case for the Shawnee prophet. He had to live through defeat. When the British lose the War of 1812, Tenskwatawa is pushed into exile. Over a decade later, 
he tries negotiating with the governor of the Michigan Territory, who says, sure, you can come back, but only if you get the rest of the Shawnee to leave their homeland in Ohio and move west of the Mississippi. And so here, this opponent of American expansion who leads this incredible revitalization movement faces an impossible decision. Remain in exile in Canada or contribute to the exile of his own people from Ohio. And so he chooses the latter. He had to build a new way of life for his people on terms established by the United States. And so that affected the way we remember him. Meanwhile, his brother increasingly becomes a symbol of his own. After Tecumseh's death, people who fought against him literally used Tecumseh as a means of defining their own greatness. Here I'm thinking about people like William Henry Harrison, who ran his campaign of 1840 uh, with the slogan, Tippecanoe and Tyler II, demonstrating his ability against the ultimate warrior, Tecumseh. Tippecanoe and Tyler II, a slogan so catchy that it persists to this day. It becomes one of the main ways that Americans remember the Battle of Tippecanoe, and by extension, these two Shawnee brothers. But historians like Peter Cousins agree. Their lives represent something much bigger. Given that the movement does ultimately crumble, why is it still important? Tecumseh was the most important, successful Indian political and military leader in American Indian history. Tecumseh was the most important Indian prophet in American Indian history. And together, they were one of the most important siblings in American history writ large. And they very well could have achieved their goal of an Indian homeland had things gone differently in the War of 1812. It was far from preordained. They fought long odds and nearly prevailed. It shows the power that the religious, social revivalist movement can have among what was really, you know, a, a, a disparate people and then how they can unite under a charismatic leader to fight for a homeland and come very, very close to achieving it. Shawnee people celebrate Tecumseh Memorial Day every October as a day of service. And Tenskwatawa's call to return to tradition, Chief Barnes says that's still felt too. Because of Tenskwatawa, Shawnee people promised to uphold the traditions of our ancestors, to uphold the language of our ancestors, to continue to practice that religion. It is no accident that we still have those things today. We have a thriving language program, so it's something I'm very proud of. And Chief Barnes is emulating the brothers in another way. The metaphor of two brothers working together is not lost on me. I am the elected chief of this tribe, and my younger brother is a speaker for our ceremonial grounds, where we worship at. So there's this living metaphor that I have between me and my brother. I am working the diplomacy, and he works the cultural and language and religious preservation side. So I hope it doesn't end as badly for me and Joel. <laughs> but I'm very much cognizant of the legacy of those two brothers. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, 
Check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, historythisweek at history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail, 212-351-0410. Thanks to our guests, Chief Ben Barnes, Peter Cousins, author of Tecumseh and the Prophet, The Heroic Struggle for America's Heartland, and Professor Stephen Warren, author of The Shawnees and Their Neighbors, 1795 to 1870. Chief Barnes and Stephen Warren are co-editors of the book Replanting Cultures, Community-Engaged Scholarship in Indian Country. And look out for Cousins' forthcoming book, A Brutal Reckoning, Andrew Jackson, The Creek Indians, and the Epic War for the American South. Thanks also to Douglas Winiarski. His most recent book is called Darkness Falls on the Land of Light, Experiencing Religious Awakenings in 18th Century New England. And thanks to Adam Jortner, author of The Gods of Prophets Down, The Battle of Tippecanoe, and The Holy War for the American Frontier. This episode was produced by Julia Press. It was story edited by Jim O'Grady and sound designed by Dan Rosato and Brian Flood. History This Week is also produced by Morgan Givens, Rebecca Nolan, and me, Sally Helm. Our associate producer is Emma Fredericks. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.